You know how Disney gets you to go to Disney World, don't you? Yeah. Here's how they do it. Let me just put this, start with this slide. They, they usually run commercials or have ads on social media, and they throw in front of you a bunch of magical images. And usually in the commercial, right, that everyone is happy. No one is sick, no one cries, but everyone just laughs and enjoys the time of their life. And it's magic at its fullness. Then right at the end of that commercial or right at the bottom of that ad on social media, they will give you, you, an invitation to come join them. It will come with a cost, but you'll have to go deep into the process to ever learn how much uh, it will cost to go there. Usually it costs an organ or two, right? But, but they capture you with these wonderful magical images. And then they say, and this could be yours as well. You could have pure happiness at a price, but it can be yours. Well, that's kind of the journey we're going to take today in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to have that kind of thing happen where we're going to see some images. We're going to see something going on in the front part, and then there will be an invitation. So let's start, let's start that journey. We're stepping into a passage where Jesus is continuing in a teaching with his disciples. Where we, where we were two weeks ago is that the apostle, or, well, he's not an apostle yet, but Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus says, yeah, you got it. And then the next part is where we jump in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is where we pick up. He then began to teach them. That's Jesus. He then, right after Peter has declared he's the Messiah, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus returned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I'm just going to stop there uh, at this point. Which is an odd, just a very odd teaching Jesus starts in on in verse 31. So Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. For the disciples, this means he is king. That is, he is the one to come that would destroy Israel's enemies and set up a throne, David's throne, on earth forever and ever. And so there would be peace from here on out, particularly in ancient Israel, and then that light would shine to the nations. But he would be a king that would destroy the enemy. This all seems good for the disciples. And they would get to be part of this massive kingdom. They would get to go from being lowly to the highest level of power. But then in verse 31, Jesus describes the kind of king he would be. And this makes no sense to the disciples, particularly Peter. And now if we had to like maybe say it in a way that I'm hoping might shock us, let me say it this way. Jesus would be king. But his coronation would be a crucifixion. You ever heard of a king being coronated? Being coronated on a cross? That just doesn't make much sense. Can you imagine what would happen if we did this with our presidents, right? It depends on which side you might be on and what election we're talking about, if you would like to see it go this way. But 
in general, you don't see an inauguration where we put a president in an electric chair. That's not how we inaugurate a president. We have pomp and circumstance. We have the best of the best there to celebrate this new president. And the same would go for a king, but in the way of Jesus, Jesus would be enthroned through a Roman cross. He would be humiliated. He'd be stripped naked. I mean naked. He's going to be whipped. You're going to see blood. And he's going to have to carry the death instrument all the way up a hill, and he's going to be nailed to it, and he's going to be naked, stripped naked on a cross, having a hard time breathing as he struggles and suffers. And that will be where he receives his crown. That just doesn't make much sense in this world. That's not how our world works. And so you can understand why Peter would be, would be hearing these words of verse 31 and 32 and going to Jesus, helping him understand this isn't the way that you are coronated in this world. There's definitely another way. Jesus just doesn't fully understand the way God works. And so he goes to Jesus to try to correct things. And Jesus then, in time, corrects his thinking. Now, the early Christians eventually are going to figure out that actually the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. They're going to get it. They're going to get it post-cross, post-resurrection. And they're going to begin to sing about Jesus in the way of the cross. And those hymns that they would sing as they gathered together as, as early Christians they would actually take root in these early Christian communities. Paul would be part of these early Christian communities that are singing these early hymns. And most scholars believe that at one point, Paul picked up one of these hymns that he had been singing among the early Christians, and he put it in writing that we now have in our Bibles. Let me just go ahead. I want to pull one of those hymns out. He writes that hymn in Psalm 2. Take a look. Take a look at how the early Christians finally got it. Psalm uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. He writes, again, probably quoting here this early Christian hymn, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be, his, to, to, use, to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These early Christians understood that actually the way to life was first through death. That you had to be humbled in order to be exalted. And this is a principle that goes all the way back to the Torah. All the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we see this principle beginning to be fleshed out. It just so happens that story finds its fulfillment in the life of Jesus. That the way to life, the way to exaltation, is to move first through a valley of humility. And Jesus walks that valley, and then he is coronated. He is made king of kings, lord of lords. Now, if we stop there, that's like Disney showing us images. Now, these are not images that, that we would be attracted to initially. But here, in verse 31 and 32 of Mark chapter 8, and then this early Christian hymn, both give us an image 
of Jesus as the humble servant, obedient to death, death on a cross, so that he would be exalted. In both Mark 8, he says he'll rise again, and then in the early Christian hymn, it says that he was exalted, made, made King of kings, Lord of lords, name above every name. And so there we have, we have images in front of us that tell the story of Jesus. Now, just like Disney, just like Disney, Jesus will now, in an odd way, invite us into the story. Now, I have no problem with being invited to a magical world in Orlando. Got no problem with that. I like the idea. But what happens next in, the pass- in this passage in Mark really does shock my senses. Because I have no problem, really, once I've thought about it and I think through it intellectually, with Jesus being the one that does all the suffering. And then we get to reap all the benefits. But Jesus doesn't leave his disciples there. And that would be his disciples in front of him, and it would be you, his students, today. Take a look what happens next in Mark chapter 8. An odd turn in the story. Verse 34. Then, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What an odd invitation. What an odd invitation. To say that I, that is Jesus, must go, suffer, die, rise again. Now, you come with me. If you want this true life, you now also have to come and pick up a cross. You have to go get your death instrument. You have to go be crucified just like me. And I imagine that some of these disciples just didn't hear that as metaphor. That is, it wasn't just a figure of speech. Literally, to be tied to Jesus was to be risky. Because here was a man claiming to be king in opposition to the Roman Caesar. This definitely could end in your crucifixion. And so here, these people hear him saying, if you want to live, you need to come die like a criminal. You need to be branded a rabble-rouser. You need to be stripped naked. You need to be beat and put on a death instrument so you can die. Then you'll find life. My, like that doesn't seem appealing. I'm ready to go find another God. That doesn't seem like something I'm in the business of, 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 of participating in. I'm not signing on for that. But Jesus understands the way reality works. This is the way to life. Now, we've been a bit desensitized. Over time, that is, us who have heard these words for years and years and years. Like, this, this at times doesn't even seem that radical. That's why I'm trying to use the word naked so much. I just want us to get hit in our senses with what this might have sounded like to the early disciples. One scholar said, put this in a few, a few sentences that I think helped at least put some shock back in my system of what Jesus was actually saying. Take a look at what this one scholar said about what Jesus says here in the invitation in Mark 8. Following Jesus is more or less, this scholar says, 
Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. And Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? Ugh. Yeah, I mean, if you really bear down, sometimes I think these words of Jesus are just an invitation to a nice afternoon hike. Or at least, it's just going to require a few minor adjustments. But for Jesus to call us to take up our cross is nothing less than a complete change in the way you live your life now. This is a radical shift. And so we need to, under, we need to hear that. We need to hear that. Now, what's interesting is that when Paul did all that review of that by writing that early Christian hymn, when he reviewed the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus, when he, when he wrote that, he had the invitation of participating in the story in mind. So just before he wrote the words we've already read in Philippians 2, he called those Christians to enter that story, just like Jesus did to his disciples in Mark 8. Take a look at how he frames Philippians 2. Starts in verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's that mindset? Verse 6, Who being in the very nature God did not... Consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And then it continues a review of his hum humiliation and then his exaltation. But all that, all that Christian hymn is framed as something you are supposed to do too. My, what an invitation. What an invitation. So what does that look like on the ground? You know what we don't see happening among the early Christians? None of them are quoting Mark chapter 8. None of them go back and say, Jesus said, like Paul in his letters never says, Jesus said, take up your cross. He never does that. He never quotes the passage we just read. So what does it look like to take up your cross as a student of Jesus? What would that have looked like in those years after the resurrection, as the message of Jesus is moving into the Roman Empire? Well, I think we got one picture, one, one look at how that would have gotten on the ground in those early churches, and I think we can see it in Colossians 3. Paul doesn't quote Mark chapter 8, but he explains to them a journey of dying to find life. Colossians 3, verse 2 through 14, I think it gives us a picture of what this might look like on the ground in ordinary life. And it, as you will see, is not a matter of a few minor adjustments. Take a look, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 through 14. Let's read this lengthy passage, but I think it's getting on the ground what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 8. So I want to quote it at length. So take this journey with me through a longer passage. Think about the things of heaven, Paul says, not the things of earth. For you died, you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, 
and evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this earth, of this, of this world. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Uh, don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and He lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults, and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. There is a way of life that says, I'm going to get mine, and I'm going to get what I want. I will get my happiness, I will get my security, and I'm going to feed every appetite I have. And then you make your business to go about getting it. That might include debt, it might include hurting people, it might include holding on to bitterness. There are all these different ways we do what we want to get what we want because we are worth it. And what Jesus says is, if you want life, you have to bring your life into the kingdom. You have to give up the rights, your rights, in order to get true life. And in a world like ours where we love our rights... This is a radical message because what Jesus says is if you will humble yourself, you'll actually get everything else thrown in. That's the way of life. I want to go back, if you don't mind, uh, before the Colossians passage, there was a, there's a summary I want to bring forward that kind of moves us then into our application. Living in the kingdom of God means following Jesus to the cross, to the cross, not to your prosperity, but to the cross and surrendering our lives to Him so that we can flourish and reign as fully formed humans in God's loving universe with God as King. Your life will work when you are not trying to be God. It would be a good thing if every day we wake up and say, I'm not God. And just look at ourselves in the mirror and just, just acknowledge, I'm not God which means I won't have the power to fix everything I want to fix. It means I'm not going to know everything I want to know. And it means I'm not going to feel the way I always want to feel. I am not God. And when you begin to move in that direction, which is a form of taking up your cross, you actually will begin to find life because you were born with limitations. And you were born to live in one place, not everywhere. Therefore, acknowledge where you are and God has you and flourish right there. That's a good thing to have in front of us. We are not God. So what would this mean for application? So like if you're going to take all of that, this invitation to follow Jesus, picking up our cross to find life, how would that work out in everyday life for you? Let me give you some suggestions. We're going to start off on the negative side of the equation, okay? if it, The goal here is to say this in such a way or to 
or to get this application worded in just the right way to make you twitch. So I'm looking for a twitch. That's what we're looking for, okay? We're looking for that small, the small head nod, you know, the pit of your stomach, those kind of things, okay? So by the end of it, we should look like we have a wave or something, okay? So the goal is we're all feeling something. If not, then um, I'm just going to I'm just going to pray harder next time that that you'll really feel it. But I want you to understand uh, that really when we get to application, we're looking at how the words of Jesus get down into real life. Real life. So here we go. Let's take a stab at it. Picking up your cross involves an intentional, strategic plan. You, you, You can't just randomly stumble into these things. Okay? A strategic plan to stop yelling and cussing in your house when you're mad. Don't twitch. That one would be real embarrassing. Just stay put. Stay put. Okay? All right. Let's continue. Looking at inappropriate images. Hmm. Holding on to bitterness. Or maybe gossiping about people you don't like. You know, all these take on different forms, don't you? We have all have subtle ways of doing this. But this is all a way, this is all a way that we're trying to establish our kingdom on earth. Why else do we yell when we're mad? Because we want to express how we feel and ensure that somehow we reestablish control. That's why we yell. Now, yelling's not always bad. Sometimes we need it to protect others or even ourselves. But I'm talking about that kind of yell that comes out when you're really angry and you're trying to hurt someone. I mean, just think about how that is really a form of establishing our little kingdoms right here and making sure that everyone knows who we are, okay? And you can just walk down that list and just consider all the ways that that is a a form of trying to be God. Let's go to this next list, okay, because we're not done. We got eight of these, so that's four. Let's go to the next four. Picking up your cross involves an intentional strategic plan to stop Buying things you can't afford to make yourself feel better. Or overworking to avoid time with your family. Now listen, I understand work can be a great excuse because there's always something to do. But sometimes we know the reason deep down is we don't actually like the people we live with. So we work all the time. Making sure, yes, stop making sure you have the last word in every argument. It's a tough one for me, particularly with teenagers. Because I always have the right last word, to give it up would be ridiculous. Why would you give that up when you're right? You get it, right? But I know, but I know sometimes grace tells me to keep my mouth shut because their roller coaster will eventually peter out and level out at least in the next hour to two hours, something like that. Or this last one, let's not forget this, beating yourself up. You know, sometimes, sometimes we are our worst critic. You know, Jesus said that you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, I don't want to get into like a bunch of, uh, you know, this deep teaching on self-love. That is like you're the most important person of the, in the universe. You're not. You're not God. But you and I must learn to accept and love ourselves. Because when we hate ourselves, that self-hate has a way of always seeping out into every other relationship we have. 
Now, self-love doesn't mean that you go around with a mirror in front of yourself taking selfies or fixing your hair all the time. That's not what self-love is. But it is accepting where God has you and how he has made you and the dreams he has given you, and you move forward in that. And so you stop the inner critic always beating yourself up. That is just another version of trying to establish yourself. you got to learn that you're actually worth it, and you have value. And so you stop that inner critic, beating yourself up. You're going to have to stop that if you're actually to put yourself in the kingdom of God by his grace. All right. Let's go now to the positive part of the equation. So picking up your cross involves not only the stopping, but an intentional strategic plan to start helping those in need without strings attached. Forgiving someone who has hurt you. And that might be a journey, by the way. That's not something you do just today. That's why it's a strategic plan of moving forward with forgiveness. Rarely is it ever instantaneous. But you start moving in that direction of forgiving someone who has hurt you or being patient with people who annoy you, right? Or becoming friends with someone who isn't like you. If all your friends look like you, you might need a new friend, okay? I'm not saying get rid of your old ones, but you might need a new one. One that doesn't look like you or sound like you. Let's go this, these last four here. Maybe you then start a strategic plan to start praying for your enemies. Can I just suggest, because we have a diversity of political opinions here, I am sure, that whoever you don't like or think that if they are president, the country's ruined, let me just suggest that you seriously start praying for them. Just, just literally every day, you pray for the person you don't like. So you Republicans, it is time to start praying for Peter Buttigieg. What have you say his name? You start praying for him. And you need to start praying for Bernie Sanders. And dare I say, Elizabeth Warren. That's right. Start praying for them. You Democrats, you pray for President Trump. You pray for him. If you don't have a candidate, pray for me. Just pray for me. If you don't have anyone, you just pray for me. All right? Uh, just because it's never a bad idea to pray for your pastor. Um, but you get the point. L- really pray for people you don't like. Really pray for them and pray for their good. God can ha- work out what that looks like in real life, okay? Give that to God to work out. Spending time, another thing, start spending time with family even when it's not efficient. Some of you want to make sure you're always getting something done. I know I do. I always want to be getting something done. You know what the most, efi- my, the most ef- inefficient thing I do every week? Spend time with Micah. I get nothing done with Micah. That's my one-year-old. He doesn't like, he doesn't like to-do lists. He will ruin any to-do list I have. He will make sure it never gets done. But there is probably no better thing I can do than just hang out with him and walk around with him as he tries to put anything and everything in his mouth. That's what I do. I just walk around and make sure he doesn't die. That's the goal. <laughs> but you and I need to be okay with spending time with family when it's inefficient. That's a way of starting to pick up your cross. Letting go. Another thing you could start doing is letting go of having the last word in an argument and then being patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself. So that means when you fail, you don't do something right, that's okay. You're still valuable. You're still valuable. You're going to mess up, just so everyone understands. You will mess up, and you won't be perfect. But part of picking up your cross is being patient with yourself. So these are all just different ways of what it looks like to pick up your cross. Very few of us will ever have a terrorist put a gun to our head and require us to confess Christ or die. 
Very few of us will ever have that happen to us, if any of us. But all of us will struggle with having the last word in an argument. Or, be, or desiring to yell when we're angry. All of that's going to work out in your real life. So that's what it looks like to follow Jesus picking up our cross right here where we are. So let's take a next step. Let's pull that to a next step. Pick one way. Pick one way to carry your cross. One, don't try to take all of those. There were like 16 things right there total. Just pick one. One thing to stop, one thing to start. Pick one. And then do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. So, like, my next right thing might be this afternoon, I'll walk around with Micah. Like, really, that's my next right thing. And I won't try to get three things done while doing it. I'll just walk around with Micah and be inefficient. That's the next right thing. And when you add up all the next right things, you know what begins to happen? You, become, you begin to become a different kind of person. You become the kind of person that picks up their cross in ordinary life which is really a radical thing in our world. So pick one, way to, pick one way to carry your cross and then just do the next right thing. And then you string together all those next right things and watch God's grace through his Holy Spirit begin to change you as we become the kind of people that no longer try to save our life but lose it and thereby we gain it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the wisdom of Jesus. And we also thank you that he did not try to hold on to his life for his own advantage, but humbled himself and became a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, that now he is exalted. God in flesh, reigning with you, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is our Savior. He is our teacher, but he is also King and we now want to, as his students, follow him in that way. So would you help us and give us wisdom and insight and empower us to repent where we need to repent and turn around. And also give us the energy, by your grace, to do the next right thing as we pick up our cross in daily life. And we'll lean in on you for that. And in all of that, we become different kinds of people as a church, as individuals, and we find true life. All of it in your Son, the Christ, the Anointed One, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.